Welcome all to this podcast on the Australian Labor Party's policy for the upcoming federal election. My name's Anthony Longland and I'm one of the partners at the Herbert Smith Freehills Employment, Industrial Relations and Safety team. And I'm joined today to talk about a, the policy and to give a general overview by my colleagues Tony Wood and Nat Gasper. Welcome. Thanks, Anthony. How are you today? Very well. Hi, Anthony. Hi, Nat. Um, the policy that we will talk to you about was, or can be found in the platform that the ALP released on about the 18th of December. There is a second document, which is a report from a Senate committee, which was issued in 2017 concerning what was called corporate avoidance of the Fair Work Act. The platform refers to that report. And so the matters that we will be discussing today are drawn from each of those sources. You might have read about or seen in the press references to some other matters, which are likely come from the ACTU policy or uh, public comments from other unions. Some of those haven't yet been incorporated into the ALP's policy, so we won't be discussing them. It's a significant proposal. Um, we should be in no doubt that if the ALP win government, there'll be changes in this area of industrial relations, which will be significant. Tony, I thought I'd turn to you to identify what you see as the, the narrative or the thrust about where the, the ALP is coming from with, with, these, with its policy. Uh, well, Anthony, there's a whole range of rationale, if you like, I think, that underpin the changes. But fundamentally, it seems that most of the uh, proposals are based on uh, restoring wages outcomes for employees who have maybe not been the beneficiaries of the buoyant economy over the last decade or so. And I think we'll find a lot of those changes are made in relation to the award system or proposed changes to the award system uh, and also obviously to the bargaining system. And I know that we'll get to both of those in a minute, but maybe I can just start off and, and hit what, what I think is goes to the essence of, of the Labor policy, and that is really an attempt to uh, redefine our approach to setting wages in Australia. So fundamentally, what they're proposing is to move from our system of minimum wages, which we've had regulated via awards or through the Fair Work Commission uh, for many times as a minimum uh, rates of pay set in awards, uh, through to a system what's called a living wage, effectively uh, really changing the way and notion of uh, recognising pay for Australian workers, especially low-paid workers. So what Labor is proposing is that they, they will empower the Commission with the ability to move from what's currently a minimum wage through to what they're calling a living wage, empowering the Commission to set those wages over time. And we don't really know what period of time that might be in contemplated, although many of the proposals both by Labor and the ACTU peripherally talk about achieving a lot of changes by 2025. So they'll be working on those uh, changes and, and secondly there'll be a whole range of uh, related changes that will go to addressing the setting of wages and also outcomes for people who might be marginalised. So there's changes that are proposed, say for instance in the setting of uh, equal remuneration provisions for uh, marginalised workers or female workers or uh, workers in typical uh, female industries, which might be uh, childcare, aged care, disability services and so on. So there's uh, the power in, contemplated for the Commission to be able to make 
uh, orders for equal pay according to equal remuneration principles, which will be developed by the, the Commission. And indeed, this establishment of a senior member of the Commission responsible for the administration of that. So I think those kind of changes uh, are really significant. And then you can contemplate the changes that are proposed in relation to reporting of pay, both uh, uh, gender pay and also executive pay. So firstly, in relation to uh, gender pay, a requirement for all employers uh, with more than a 1,000 employees to reveal the gender pay gap uh, that may exist and for that information to be publicly available. Now, that system already operates in, in the UK. In fact, even our law firm has obligations of reporting pursuant to that uh, scheme that currently exists in the UK, but it's something which will be novel here and uh, obviously designed to ensure some greater levels of accountability and transparency. But talking of which, uh, the other Labor proposal there is is to uh, to actually pro, uh, prohibit secrecy clauses in contracts. So you can't have an enforceable provision in a contract which bars one worker from talking to another worker about the level of remuneration they receive or the terms and conditions of their employment. So I think you get the flavour of the gist of what they're proposing. And maybe just finally in that space... Um, on executive pay is another area which I think is significant. So we're going to have a requirement for uh, a listed employer with more than 250 employees to disclose the ratio uh, between the CEO pay and the medium, uh, median uh, employee remuneration and uh, potentially providing uh, uh, shareholders to uh, cast votes or ballots imposing limitations on executive pay. So I think when you consider all of those proposals, it's a fairly far-reaching change to the way we set wages and view wages. And some might say, um, whether it's uh, politics of envy, uh, others might say it's just a way of trying to address the disparity that exists. So... It seems like there's really three sort of broad platforms upon which the ALP's, you know, uh, platform is based and it's this narrative of increasing wages for Australians quickly. Um, it's an, it, a regime of more transparency and disclosure obligations and I think the third sort of general area at a really high broad level is also addressing what's perceived to be underemployment and under underemployment and uh, under utilisation of employees and um, the issue of insecure work in this country. That's really helpful. I think with wages in particular, we've talked about the minimum wage or a living wage. Um, how is our wages to move um, for people that are higher up the scale? Uh, do we retain a bargaining? based system where workers will still bargain for outcomes and what changes um, I guess will be made to to assist those workers that don't rely upon the minimum wage or, or this new living wage to to access increases look I think that's a really fascinating issue because I think we first of all the changes that are contemplated to awards are kind of confusing the approach that Australia has traditionally had for many years because we've had a system of minimum wages supplemented by uh, enterprise bargaining. And I think most people would agree uh, that enterprise bargaining has, has really been on a, a decline over the last five, probably even ten years when you look at it objectively. Um, it's been successful somewhat, some workers in some industries, but for certainly many workers in other industries it hasn't delivered a particularly helpful wages outcomes. 
Um, so the question here is these changes are proposing that awards move from minima through to living wages, but still uh, build upon top of that, we're going to have enterprise bargaining. But that's not all. The mm. bargaining system that Labor is proposing is really intended to uh, ramp up the, uh, the ability for workers to engage uh, in bargaining and to bring employers to the table, potentially, and most, I think, significantly by bringing in the potential for multi-employer agreements or indeed for bringing labour hire workers who may be peripherally engaged uh, into the bargaining regime with the primary employer who is naturally, or sorry, the the engaging employer who is not actually their their actual employer through the labour hire agency. So I think those kind of changes are going to make a very significant um, increase in bargaining power for those kind of workers and therefore will increase uh, their leverage and potentially uh, increase the wages outcomes for those for those groups of employees. Uh, I think it's important to, I guess, superannuation is an issue which affects employees across the spectrum. Obviously, the, those that rely upon the, the minimums and the award system, and even those that that do bargain. And it's interesting to see the proposal to restart the increases in the minimum superannuation contribution uh, system. Uh, I think the proposal is to move to 12.5%, as was proposed um, some years ago before it was the, the increases were ceased. But then there's a, an objective stated in the policy to move superannuation contributions up as high as, as 15%. So I guess that follows the same narrative that you've identified, Tony, in delivering um, increased wages, uh, increased remuneration for, for people. I, I, that's right. Can I say, in addition, I mean, I think the, the intention is to get to 12% by 2025. But interestingly, even at the lower end, and this is really consistent with Labor's policy for, platform, uh, what they're intending is is to effectively phase out the current minimum uh, contribution threshold so that every worker, including someone currently on, say, $450 per, fort, uh, per, per month, um, which is a threshold minimum above which, uh, below which you don't receive superannuation is to be included. So that's going to be phased out by 2024. So you can kind of get the policy drift as well that they're, they're dealing with it at both the high end and the lower end. Uh, but I think the uh, the increase in contribution uh, uh, you know, uh, up to 15% is going to be really significant, although there's no set time frame for at least that that perspective. It's interesting, though, the ACTU is a lot more robust in its approach on that. They're, they're really pushing the 15% as soon as practicable, whereas Labor's policy is to go to the 12% as soon as practicable. And, you know, that's all that they're able to say at this point. And obviously, when they're in, well, I should say, if they're in government, um, then that will become a lot more uh, more clear. And superannuation is interesting because it's been in the press with the um, Royal Commission uh, and the Banking Royal Commission. It's also something which is um, was a, an area that the current government has sought to introduce reforms, particularly to default super funds, the relevance of the industrial relations system for uh, identifying default funds. And it just seems that if the ALP get into government, that part of the system will be entrenched. We will see awards and enterprise agreements identifying default funds and seems that there'll still be that connection between the the IR system and the superannuation system, which we've become accustomed to. Well, Anthony, if you're older, as old as we are, uh, you remember that that's what the system was like 20 years ago when we first introduced uh, you know, compulsory superannuation. It was very much controlled 
uh, by unions as an industrial uh, uh, mechanism, and then it was taken out of the award system, and now it seems that we're going back to the future and going to have it again being... Uh, disputed at least in the power within the Commission to fix and set default funds, which is a really very interesting uh, fact. And I think a lot of employers are very worried about uh, potentially handing over control of uh, you know, these vast um, superannuation investment funds to uh, union-controlled funds. Now, whether that's true or not, uh, or whether that's driving the narrative from Labor is is, uh, is a moot point, I think. But it's certainly going to industrialise the issue of superannuation all over again. Yeah, yeah I think um, it's not an issue that employers have really had to turn their mind to, um, but it might be back on the radar uh, under these this type of system. Um, I just wanted to move on because something else which has grabbed me, and you've mentioned it briefly in your reference to bargaining, is the treatment of Labor hire employees We've seen the economy really disaggregate in a way, if you like, since enterprise bargaining was introduced in '93. not just through the um, increased use of labour hire, although some say that the increases aren't as great as um, some others claim, but also different types of employment, fixed-term employment, particularly in the higher education sector and similar sectors, uh, increased part-time employment. I'm just wondering, Nat, what's your take on how those areas will be affected if the if the ALP take government and introduce this policy? Yeah, look, it's it's really interesting area to watch and one where um, there's already been some development. So a couple of states in this country have already introduced labour hire licensing laws, um, the purpose of which, of course, is to require labour hire licence providers to be licensed. Um, there's rules for obtaining a licence, including a bit of a, a clean slate type of um, test. So labour hire licence providers must not um, have uh, engaged in any instances of uh, underpayment and also have a clean safety record and the like. So not only does it require that of labour hire licensors, um, providers, but also in respect to those who engage those labour hire licence companies to ensure that they've got a licence um, under threat of criminal sanction. So it's quite significant. Um, so employers in those states are grappling in those, and one of the proposed changes by the ALP is uh, the introduction of a national scheme. So in one sense, uh, that might actually be a welcome reform in the sense that perhaps there's less tape in dealing with um, different schemes in different um you know, states and territories in in this country. But again, this is part of an overarching narrative in relation to the regulation of what is seen as insecure work. Um, and uh, there's other aspects of reform by the ALP in this space, including, um, and, and one that's been the subject of quite rigorous debate already, is ensuring that the terms and conditions of labour hire workers are the same as the principal. Um, uh, now, of course, uh, that's going to be quite challenging, particularly where labour hire um, providers, standalone labour hire providers, are providing their services to various uh, numerous employers in various sectors. So, uh, very interesting and one to watch. And on that, just now, I, I think that the devil's going to be in the detail on that one a bit because yeah. we, what do you do the comparison on is what jumps out to me. There's so many. Um, both um, principals and labour hire companies that have enterprise agreements that don't prescribe 
actual terms and conditions. Uh, in the resources sector over here in the West, we call them baseline agreements. So if you've got um, a principal that's got a baseline agreement that rewards its direct employees, perhaps through individual performance uh, and pursuant to a, its own scheme, what's the baseline you look at to compare to the labour hire employees? Um, so the devil could really be uh, in the detail there. And um, what happens? Is, is, is this an incentive for the principal to reduce the number of directly employed employees and perhaps in parts of the business to remove them um, so that there is no comparison to be made? Um, these are matters which don't seem to me at least to be clear on the policy uh, and the implementation will be very interesting. Yeah, absolutely, I agree. And um, similarly, I think an area where we're eagerly anticipating a bit more information is in relation to the types of employment and the definitions associated with those. So uh, what the ALP have indicated is that they are going to remove this concept of permanent casual um, and introduce a definition of independent contractors as a, one who's... Um, to flip it the other way, an employee definition uh, where there's where a reasonable person would find that to be the case. So um, there's all that raises all sorts of questions in relation to how that's going to play out in practice. I think one thing we can say is that um, at the moment we're dealing with an increased uh, uh, sort of focus, I suppose, on the gig economy and the way people are performing work. Um, and at the moment in this country, we're still relying on these quite antiquated notions of um, the indicia of employment to discern whether a worker is an individual, independent contractor or an employee. And I think it's fair to say that the law probably hasn't kept pace with the way people are working these days. And so uh, I think both employers and employees are looking for clarity in that space. The question is, what does that look like and how is it going to impact the way people are engaged in and, and I think the challenge that we face in this space is not throwing the baby out with the bathwater because what we're doing is in evolving uh, a system that, that needs to recognise different types of employment in the gig economy or just in any active e economy which needs flexibility, uh, which, uh, you know, needs to have, uh, uh, you know, ups and downs for economic cycles and which has relied traditionally on uh, you know, supplementary labour through labour hire agencies, then if we regulate that out of existence, we really, I think, um, you know, face a prospect of, of uh, damaging, you know, parts of the economy as well, which, which might, I know is not, would not be the intention of the legislation. Mm -hmm. Anyway, that's a, that's, a, that's a little bit of an editorial add-on by me, I suppose, but I think we need to be really careful about the, the nature of those changes. I think that's, that's a point well made. And again, the devil will be in the detail. Clearly, a lot of this, um, the, the reforms proposed in this area really have been supercharged, if you like, by the debate which has happened with respect to casual employment following the Workpack and Skeen case and other cases like it. Um, not only is there a desire to reduce the incidence of casual employment and, as you said, remove the notion of a permanent casual, but it seems also that the definition will be such that there will be uh, it will remove um, the doubt which has flowed, I suppose, from those court decisions. Just briefly, um, before we finish on, on this particular area, I want to draw attention to the sham contracting provisions 
it just seems to me reading the policy that this notion of wage theft, a term that probably was never used when, when you and I started practising, Tony, um, we had underpayment claims where there'd been underpayments, but wage theft is now regarded in such a way that the accessory liability provisions will bring to account not just the company underpaying, but the principal, in a sense, if it's if the contract if the company is a contractor, um, and individual officers within the company. So that sham contracting and underpayment regime, I think there'll be a significant um, compliance piece for our larger clients and for larger businesses to make sure that they can steer clear of what seemed to me to be far more serious sanctions uh, and far more attention on those That's issues. Right. Yeah, look, there's various elements to that part of the platform. And to be honest, it continues upon a theme um, that has already begun by the current government with its vulnerable workers legislation, which was introduced uh, in September of 2017, um, the focus of which was ensuring that vulnerable workers um, are not disadvantaged and imposing higher sanctions in respect of serious contraventions of legislation, in respect of franchise and the like. So um, that conversation has already begun. Um, the ALP is proposing to, as you have indicated, ramp that up quite significantly. So substantial fines of uh, well over a million dollars. There's talk of uh, reversing the onus of proof in respect of underpayment claims, which to extent already exists in some sense in respect of employers who don't have records um, to disprove an underpayment. And I think one area um, that I, I focused on and found quite interesting is the proposal in relation to the uh, regulation of directors and directorship. So what is proposed is that directors be issued with uh, identification numbers, but quite significantly that they be exposed for personal liability in relation to money owed by that company in respect of employees, but also in respect of civil penalties for contraventions of the Fair Work legislation. Mm. This is the um, policy, I suppose, which has arisen from the, the phoenixing practice um, in the construction industry. It's been written about um, quite a lot where there's this perception that um, companies go under all too frequently and workers are left without entitlements. So it seems to me that's what's driving this enhanced compliance focus. Yeah, I think that's right. And not just in that space. I mean, I think a whole range of the areas of additional regulation are, are addressing a lot of the problems that we see with smaller and medium-sized businesses and in some senses, Ned, as you pointed out, in relation to franchise operations as well. So most of the uh, the bigger businesses, uh, that, that the, the, which rely so heavily on their reputation, I think already have got you know terrific systems in place by and large which ensure compliance. And the type of approach I think is likely to result in criminal prosecutions for wage theft and the like are most likely to affect those where there is an intention to uh, defraud or, or withhold uh, you know, monies that are due, due and owing to employees. Uh, and you know, good employers that have already got appropriate policies are, are, are going to be okay. But there are a lot of smaller businesses that operate on very low margins and, and may, maybe are not economically sustainable um, uh, overall and they cut corners and they're the ones that are going to be very vulnerable under this type of legislation. And I think the devil's in the detail and um, we'll move on to the next topic in a minute but 
I don't think that your large employers need uh, can afford to ignore this because there are large employers in some sectors that operate on uh, narrow margins, um, and this compliance, uh, this additional compliance, seems to me to be um, so important that it's something that um, even those large employers need to keep an eye on. Yeah. Just move on to our third major topic, and that's bargaining and industrial action. It's probably a big enough topic to warrant its own podcast. Perhaps I could frame up this question for you both. Um, If bargaining is to be truly voluntary in the sense that employers have got the right to agree or not to agree to an outcome, then how can you um, guarantee or even ensure or even make it more likely that wage increases will follow? We hear the ACTU talking about employers that simply refuse to enter agreements. How do you see the system that the ALP policy proposes um, as dealing with that issue? Perhaps you first, Tony. Do you have any thoughts on that? Uh, look, I, th- I think the current system we have is one that's evolved you know, quite in a sophisticated way, and we can thank... Uh, a range of people from Paul Keating through to Peter Reith and, uh, and and Julie Gillard for the system that we have, and you know people are now attributing blame rather than credit to them for the for the system that's evolved. Um, it, it obviously is has resulted in fairly stagnant wage reviews in the last few years, uh, well, particularly for certain sectors of the industry, and that's why I think the main change that we're going to see through the, the proposal is, is uh, the introduction of greater, greater powers for lower paid workers or workers in industries that, that have, have not been successful to exercise their leverage. I mean, the system of bargaining has always been in Australia and it still is and probably universally is a system that relies upon um, you know, economic coercion from one party against the other. And uh, to the extent that you have no power um, in, in the system, you're unable to exercise leverage and therefore it's un- you're unable to, to achieve uh, better wages outcomes. So I think one of the fundamental principles of Labor's proposal is that they're going to enable uh, through, for instance, uh, uh, concerted bargaining across an industry or sector or, or at least companies uh, broadly within a sector, the ability to uh, act in concert to put pressure on uh, employers in an industry and that will therefore significantly, in my view, enhance their bargaining proposition and and result in uh, either more industrial action or uh, potentially uh, wage wage outcomes which are in excess of those that we've seen over the last few years. So I think that's going to be the main change that we're going to see, Anthony. Natalie, uh, what are your thoughts? What the Labor's proposed changes in relation to this space are intending to do is um, grant increased leverage to employees and unions, and there's a couple of ways that they can do that. One is in relation to the taking of protected industrial action. Um, And, you know, we've seen this in our practice. It's amazing how employers... Uh, talk, uh, you know, will go in and say, we can't afford that sort of wage increase or this is a die-in-the-ditch issue to us. And then all of a sudden a parbo parbo comes in, so a protected action ballot order, and all of a sudden um, they backflip. So it's it's that. And um, the other way of increasing leverage, as has already been mentioned, is through other mechanisms, such as the inability of employers to terminate, for example, an enterprise agreement during the course of bargaining after it's 
past its normal expiry date. Now, of course, that's a mechanism that's not often actually used and pressed the button on, but it is one of the few um, measures an employer's artillery, I suppose, in bargaining. So, And there's, there's other measures as well. Um, one relates to um, this concept, and I've mentioned at the start about one of the three pillars, as I saw it, is about enhanced disclosure. And um, in a bargaining sense, there's talk of enhancing the good faith bargaining requirements about truth in bargaining. So it's, a, it's like a positive obligation on employers to um, lay open their, their books so that bargaining can proceed with eyes wide open. I, I, like the, I was interested in the way that that's expressed in the policy to the, to the extent that the employer's obligation will relate to explaining by reference to its documents, why it can't accede to claims which are made against it. So that will be, I agree with you, a significant change. I'd probably just add to what you've both said there, access to arbitration. Yeah. That has been really controlled, uh, really since 1993. You've got to have threat, a threat to the national economy, um, a threat to the welfare of individuals before the Commission will jump in and award increases through its arbitration powers. The policy here makes clear that intractable disputes will be those which grant access to arbitration. Now, intractable might simply mean that a union's been trying for a certain period to bring an employer to agreement on wage increases and hasn't been able to do that. Intractable might simply mean that there's been significant industrial action, but I think that's something else to watch. just want to um, refer to a few other um, more minor matters, but one that really grabbed my attention was whistleblowing. Um, there does seem to be a, a real intention in this policy to address that issue and to provide a, a more formal or um, regulated means by which whistleblowers can be protected. Tony, do you have any um, thoughts on how that's going to work in practice? Well, I think this is fascinating uh, area, Anthony, because we've already seen this year, in fact, uh, on in July of 2019, there'll be the, uh, the most recent... Uh, uh, wide parliamentary support changes to the Corporations Act, which are going to uh, mandate certain changes in relation to whistleblowing. So, for instance, it is now it will be mandatory uh, for uh, most employers, certainly large employers, to have a policy and to be vulnerable uh, to very significant fines if they don't follow certain processes in relation to the protection of whistleblowers, and particularly the anonymity of whistleblowers. Um, and and the like, but those those changes uh, are nevertheless significant, but don't go anywhere near as far as what's proposed by Labor in in their in their uh, platform. They're going to create uh, a, a an independent, uh, self-sustaining whistleblowing act um, under which they will establish a whistleblower protection authority. Um, which sorry, I know I hear you thinking that's more regulation, Anthony. But let me finish. Um, with powers to report and investigate and, more importantly, to compensate uh, a whistleblower for the, uh, the if you like, the, the profits or the misdeeds arising from the, the whistleblowing, which has been called out by, by the, uh, the whistleblower themselves. This is kind of a US system. And it's going to be a fundamental change, if that's implemented, to the way that uh, employees... 
as whistleblowers, are incentivised to be able to make grievances and at the same time be protected from any adverse action arising from those. So I think that's going to be very significant. And clearly, uh, Labor is advocating this policy as part of its view about transparency, governance, uh, clear accountability. So uh, the the change is going to be one that is going to be very fundamental to the way organisations are regulated and, as I said, by taking out that regulation from the Corporations Act and putting it into a separate piece of legislation. Yeah, it's very significant. And obviously employers are going to have to have policies and deal with it, and many of them already have and are doing that, but in my view, nowhere near to the extent uh, that would cope with the kind of changes that are contemplated uh, by, by Labor. Mm. And I think the proposal that a whistleblower, it's not just compensation as I read it, Tony, the whistleblower is rewarded um, yes. for yeah. the disclosure. and that, right. that, So they're not compensated for, for any loss. Um, the way that the courts go about calculating the bounty, Nat, uh, and the incentive that the system will give to uh, whistleblowers to make disclosures is not something which I think is um, there's no precedent at least in our economy for for these kinds of measures and it'll be um, fascinating to see how they play out. You may well find uh, professional bounty hunters, to use Nat's term, going into businesses looking for uh, you know fraudulent activity or improper activity, which might well be the subject of a whistleblower complaint and reaping the rewards as a result of those um, you know, penalty uh, disclosure obligations. So that is going to be fascinating. And I can see a lucrative area for lawyers uh, practising in this space as well. I think we, um, as you're speaking, Tony, it um, occurs to me that it might be a subject for a separate podcast to have a real look at how the US provisions have yeah. worked in practice and to see what kind of learnings we might get from them. Just um, to finish up the podcast with a few matters we haven't discussed, I'm practising in the West over here in mining and resources, and so any suggestion of increased regulation of fly-in, fly-out or FIFO employment is of interest to the, com- the business community over here. Um, it's, this policy makes clear that there will be increased regulation of FIFO, including potentially the rosters that FIFO employees work We've seen the, the postcode legislation in Queensland and we've seen the code of practice here in WA. So that's a space where there'll continue to be developments and will need to be monitored. Interestingly, there's a reference to an automation tax. Ah, the robot tax. Or something, that's right. The media calls it a robot tax. And when you look at the whole system, you can just see that um, one way out of this, one, one way to avoid increasing wages in the manner that this policy seeks to achieve... Uh, is to ramp up automation. And that automation tax seems to me at least to be clearly designed to make that less attractive uh, for some employers. And finally, uh, the NES, the National Employment Standards. I just wanted to draw attention to the proposal for increased paid parental leave. A scheme that will deliver 26 weeks paid parental leave is what the policy addresses. And it says that the scheme is to be funded by government and employers. Uh, and that's and uh, including superannuation as well, Anthony, which is significant. That is significant and some increased uh, non-paid parental leave as well. I think up to two years is what the policy says, Nat. Um, that's a... Well, there's one other thing I think that we haven't even mentioned uh, in relation to awards, Anthony, and that is you know, the, the clear commitment that Labor's made in its first 100 days that it's going to legislate 
to restore the uh, cuts that were made by the full bench of the uh, Fair Work Commission to Sunday public holiday penalty rates. And uh, one, one could make a pretty good argument that there's a lot of politics associated with that change and uh, or that proposal, but uh, that's going to result in, in one sense, the disempowerment of the Commission and the re-legislation and, and regulation of the minimum safety net via, via legislative means. So I think that's going to be a significant change for a number of employees who are affected by that previous decision a couple of years ago. Agree, Tony. And as we've discussed previously, I think it's fascinating that since the corporation's power has been used from the, the mid-noughties in, in 06 with work choices, um, the opportunities opened up for governments to legislate directly uh, rather than leave standard setting to the Commission. And I guess those last two measures that we've talked about are real-life examples of how in this election campaign those minimums will be, in a sense, political issues that are campaigned about through both sides rather than matters which for 100-odd years were, were left to an independent tribunal. Well, you take the good with the bad with that, don't you? Because, I mean, the, the Commission is um, unaccountable. It's not politically accountable like a government is. And it made a number of decisions over many years which um, are not particularly palatable or popular with one side of politics or the other. But there's no question in my mind, and I think you probably agree on this, that one of the greatest reforms that we've seen in the last... 30, 40 years has actually been the legislated safety net. It makes the system so much clearer, more transparent, easily understood, uh, and the minima, which apply equally across the country to uh, employees. I mean, that's been a wonderful reform. Um, the, 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 the difficulty that you confront is always that being used to political disadvantage or advantage by one party or the other. But nevertheless, the system it's set up itself is a, is a solid one, I think. I agree with you. The Work Choices case, and that was a brilliant reform in Work Choices. It was a bold reform to use the corporation's policy, and sensibly uh, it was adopted, mutus mandus, as they say, by the Gillard government with the fair work reforms. Before I conclude the podcast, I'll probably, um, I'd like to ask each of you for a, a concluding comment about um, what our clients and uh, the business community in Australia need to be thinking about as we approach the election. Natalie? Uh, look, I, I think um, bargaining strategies need to be looked at now for employers in that space, the way uh, businesses engage um, non-traditional forms of labour in the sense of labour hire contractors, independent contractors, casual employees. Um, we know that there's going to be a lot of reform in that space and there's a lot that can be done now to prepare for that. Tony? Yeah, I just make the same point. I mean, you need to identify clear areas of vulnerability of your business, especially if you relied on uh, labour hire contracted employees. You know that those people are going to be the subject of further regulation and you need to have additional mechanisms uh, in your planning to, to work out how you're going to structure your workforce moving ahead. And as Nat said, also in relation to bargaining, if you're a business in that realm, you need to consider how the very nature of your relationships with your employees, your individual engagement, uh, can continue to be uh, enhanced while you face uh, different challenges from uh, potentially more empowered unions. And 
or, or and or independently of that, how you uh, reinvigorate your relationships with those, those unions to, to, to be as constructive as you can in the circumstances. There are many different approaches depending on you know the legacy of your business, the history and the prospects moving forward. Mm. I think I agree with all of those observations and I'd probably just add that if you're confronting an environment where labour costs will inevitably increase, that's what the policy unashamedly um, expresses and that's what the measures we've discussed I think will deliver if they're implemented. Uh, you need to focus on productivity and you need to focus on your relationships with your people. Um, a higher wage environment doesn't need to be a less productive one. In fact, it can be a more productive one. So the way in which these measures are implemented in your business, um, it can be done thoughtfully and carefully, I think, in a way that gives you a more productive outcome where you get the, the, the bang for your buck, as it were, for the, for the increased labour costs that are likely to follow. So with that final observation, can I just remind you all that this podcast will be posted to the Herbert Smith Freehills website where there's a federal election hub. You'll find a range of other materials at the hub that our team members across the country have contributed. We're trying to be thoughtful in terms of discussing how these proposals uh, will play out in practice and the sorts of conversations that you want to be having in your business or leading in your business as we approach the election and what if the ALP is successful is likely to be one of the most significant reforms of our IR system in the 25 odd years that I've been working at the firm. Um, thanks, Tony. Thanks, Nat. Thanks, Anthony. My pleasure. Sign off. Tally-o. Thanks, mate. You have been listening to a podcast brought to you by Herbert Smith Freehills. For more episodes, please go to our channel on iTunes or SoundCloud and visit our website herbertsmithfreehills.com for more insights relevant to your business.